0: in a small city.
1: It's a little seaside town several miles from the sea. It's hard to explain, but when you see it you will know what I mean. Most of the buildings here are over 300 years old. The chapel is nearly four. They are all painted in soft pastels like Easter egg shoeboxes in the tall grass. The ocean wind is always blowing through the grass. It's quite a beautiful place to see the sunrise. I know you're sleeping till noon these days, but one early morning won't kill you. You can always go back to sleep after. I am settling in at my new job, and it is fine. What sort of stuff do you like to eat these days? I still don't cook as much as your mother, but I started to get pretty good at a few things. There aren't as many restaurants around here, don't panic, there's still a place to get cheeseburgers. I just don't go out to eat as much. There are fewer excuses to when I'm by myself, and the people here are a bit strange. It's hard to explain. Whenever I'm out and about, even in the middle of a bright sunny day, the streets are empty. The lights in the shops are always on, the doors are always open, but the insides are totally empty except for the merchandise on the shelves. There's usually nobody behind the register either, or the bar, wherever they are, but often the doors behind the counter are open, like leading to a back office or a storage room, or at least cracked anyways, and there's always a light coming from underneath that tells you there is someone inside. Maybe they're avoiding me. Don't worry. I am still showering regularly. Don't listen to what your mother says. That's just our way of joking with each other. I have made a few friends, though, and they're excited to meet you so you can tell your mother I'm not a hermetic little freak. Just kidding. Don't tell her that. Their names are Mr. and Mrs. Clausen. They own the boarding house where I'm staying. It's a wonderful old Victorian. Do you know what that is? Ask your mother to explain it. There's a tall turret tower on one side, like a castle. I am renting a room in the turret. Isn't that cool? It is very cool. Maybe I'm not doing a great job of explaining it, but you'll see it for yourself. The Clausens have an empty room, which they're already setting aside for you. They're about your grandparents' age and very nice. In fact, they have a grandson who is a few years older than you and a garage full of toys that he no longer plays with. Do you remember the show where they gave the kids an empty shopping cart and 60 seconds to grab as many toys from the shelves from the toy store as they could? I imagine it'll be something like that. I'll write again closer to the day of your arrival. Very excited to see you. Study hard for your finals. Do you even take finals in eighth grade? Tell your mother I said hello. Your dad. Good news. Good enough that I hope you will forgive me for writing you for a second time in as many weeks. The Claussons have offered to take us out on their sailboat while you're here. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe we'll invite your mother to come along for that. If she wants to stay for a while after she drops you off, we can take a picnic and everything. I think it would be a very fun time, don't you? We will look just like the Kennedys. <laughs> can you imagine? Dad.
0: Those are the only two letters I received from my father before visiting him for the summer. This morning, while cleaning out his room, in a house far from the closens in that little seaside town, I found a journal full of letters that he wrote and never sent. The spelling mistakes and shakier handwriting of the first entry indicate that he probably wrote it drunk. Before she put me on the bus, my mother warned me about my father's drinking. Maybe he had been drinking more than usual. But I remember that entire summer, aside from the first night, I didn't see him drink once.
1: I just wanted to write one more time and tell you how excited I am to see you. How glad I am for your visit. I promise I do not hate you. I worry sometimes that you think I hate you. I have not been the best dad, but I do not hate you. It pains me to admit it, but I think that I did resent you when you were younger. I don't say it to be mean, but just to tell you that you aren't crazy if you ever think that. I was younger too, and stupid. You will understand when you are older, the way that a baby can change your entire life, and not always in ways that are pleasant. I was stupid, stupid, and full of regrets. But it fills my heart to see you growing up and becoming your own person. In our calls, and through your mother's letters, and the photos that she sends, I'm proud of you. We will have lots of
0: fun this summer. He left it unsigned. The following page was dated May 30th, a week before I arrived.
1: Awoke this morning to another note under the door from Mrs. Clausen. She tells me she will be doing laundry this afternoon. She asks if I have been eating enough. She reminds me that rent will be due in two weeks. The house sounds empty, but I know it is not. At least they say it is not. I am coming up on my third month here, and when I try to picture any of my neighbors' faces, I cannot. In fact, I cannot recall meeting a single other person in this house since I arrived. Though that cannot be correct. There are people here. I hear them moving around through the walls, pacing the halls, walking the stairs at all hours of the night. I see lighted windows when I arrive home after midnight, find bathroom doors locked when I try to take a shower. Maybe our schedules don't line up. Not that I have much of a schedule these days. The other night, I heard shouting through the air ducts like a couple was fighting in some far-off part of the house. A couple of days ago, a man moved into the room above mine. The one at the top of the tower? I only know he is a man, because sometimes, late at night, I can hear him clearing his throat. His footsteps are loud, too. But I've known women who have had heavy feet. I'm sure you can think of a few, too. Cough. Cough. Don't show this one to your mother. As I am writing this, It will be like you were here with me when you read this. The new tenant upstairs has begun making a horrible racket. For five minutes now, he has been banging away on the most gruesome-sounding typewriter I have ever heard and shows no signs of slowing. I hope he doesn't make a habit of this. I don't know how I'm ever going to get to sleep, not that I have to be up particularly early or anything, but still... Don't ever grow up to be an inconsiderate person, all right? Always take into account other people around you. If you put goodness out there, you'll receive it back tenfold. I still believe that. And if you don't, then at least you did some good. And what else can you really hope for? Anyway, the man upstairs is still typing, so I suppose I'm still writing. What an awful noise. If he keeps this up, when you come here, I'll have to go up there and talk with him about it. Not that you ever go to bed before two in the morning if you can help it, as I recall, but still, that banging, that squealing metal, whack, 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 whack. If there's at least some order to it, some rhythm, maybe my brain could tuck it away somewhere in the background, but no, it makes my heart jump. Every other time he starts up, there, just now, a full half-minute passed. I was looking at the clock, and I just started to let myself think that it was over for the night, and he started in again, harder than ever, thwack, 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 what could he possibly be pecking away at with such hatred in every stroke, every guillotine swing of the little leaden hammers, that incessant bing, piercing my eardrums, the grinding of the carriage resetting?
0: The rest of the page was filled with scribbled false starts, turned into doodles, or else into frustrated little splotches of black ink where the paper had turned so thin that the tip of the pen nearly scratched through to the next page. Then near the bottom.
1: It is finished. I am scanning the horizon through my window, dreading the sunrise which I know will be here any moment. I cannot sleep. I can barely keep my eyes open. I put my head on the pillow and all I can hear is the typing, the typing, ringing around and around inside of my skull. Clack, 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 clack. I can't turn it off. I can't even make it quieter except for while I myself am writing, I guess. It isn't happening right now. But when I close my eyes, I swear to God he is listening to me. I, I don't know how I know, but I just know. He is up there, whoever he is. Really, there are only a few inches of wood between he and I, as awake as I am, staring off at nothing and listening, maybe even with his ear to the floorboards, or maybe simply lying in bed in the dark, like I can somehow feel his ears straining out, probing every vibrating atom of air between he and I, so that even the scratching of my pen, the beating of my heart would register, like we are somehow horrifyingly connected. Against my will, and even in the privacy of my own bed, I can feel his presence, like he can even hear my thoughts somehow, (laughs) as if he can translate each mark of the pen on the paper for which letter it represents, string those into words, and hear. Well, I don't remember the last time I was up at this hour. I feel like I'm losing my mind. Sleep deprivation is no joking matter. You think you're invincible at your age. I used to hear people say that we spend a third of our lives asleep, and I would take it as a challenge. You'll kill yourself trying. Sleep is one of the greatest gifts of life. Sleep whenever the opportunity arises and your body wants it. Why ever fight it? Sleep is wonderful. In fact, I'd say it might be the best third of your life. Be like an ape in a tree, napping and dreaming easily at 11 a.m. Someday you won't be able to, so you should enjoy the times you can while you have the chance. I don't know why I'm still writing. I can see the sun taunting me beneath the curtains. Now it'll be the self-loathing that'll keep me awake. Not that I exactly have any pressing plans or obligations tomorrow.
0: Also unsigned. Two days after the last day of school, my mother took me out for a pancake breakfast and then hugged me and put me in my suitcase on a bus. I arrived in town, perhaps an hour before sunset. My father was not at the bus station, but a woman who'd ridden in with me offered to take me wherever i was going her husband was waiting with the car to pick her up i looked in the alleys and in the nearby shops and up and down the street no sign of him i took the woman's offer and watched the road for any sign of my father coming the other way a couple minutes late i didn't see him and he wasn't at the boarding house either i knocked on the door and then turned and waved to the couple terrified that they would wait around because somehow as soon as I knocked I knew that my father wouldn't be there, and I did not want to burden them or put them in the awkward situation of having to leave me full well knowing that I would be sitting waiting on my suitcase for hours. To my great relief, they returned my wave and then left. I watched their car grow smaller and smaller, and I could see it for longer than I could hear it, cresting one rise and then reappearing on another, and blowing down all the whispering seagrass in its wake. When it was gone and I was alone, that was all that was left, the wind whispering in the tall grass, and a huge, rolling sky above. The door was locked, and nobody answered, so I sat on the porch, even though it was a bit chilly in the shade. Something about all that unbroken sky made me uneasy. I will always remember the strange way that the light seemed to interact with the architecture of the house. That waxy orange glow, projected in such sharp, geometric forms, rhombuses bent where floors met walls, high, burning trapezoid patches of wallpaper. The house faced the ocean, and the sun set behind the house, and soon I was sitting in the dark, still listening to the wind in the grass. I don't know exactly how long passed. No lights came on inside the house, and with each passing minute the gravity of its gloom grew. Crickets sang and I listened to see if I could hear the ocean. Eventually my dad's car pulled into the driveway and when he stepped out he was carrying a pizza box. We said hello and hugged. He apologized. He'd already eaten a few slices of the pizza. He made no mention of where he had been and never even acknowledged how late he was or his leaving me at the train station. In the moment I supposed that the fault was so obvious it didn't bear mentioning in a a let's-just-have-a-nice-night sort of way. But looking back on it, I'm not so sure that in his addled state he didn't just forget to mention it, or even momentarily forget that I was coming that day, or what day it was altogether. His mind certainly seemed to be elsewhere as he unlocked the door to let us inside, his voice distant and distracted, always trailing off mid-thought. The pizza was mostly cold, but I ate all but one of the remaining slices anyways, I think that the more empty time you have to spend thinking about how hungry you are, for example, sitting quietly for hours on a dark porch, the hungrier you will feel. My dad cracked a beer but didn't want to eat any more pizza, so he sat on a little couch in a room adjacent to the kitchen and sipped beer and asked me questions about school and my friends. It did not seem so strange to me at the time that he was not facing me while we talked. In fact, I don't think I noticed it at all. The couch was facing the way it faced. It's really only in recollecting and tilting the proverbial prism of that summer to consider it from another angle that it gains any significance. Whether by design or coincidence, it is true that I saw little of his face that first night. Was this to hide his sweaty, drawn face, the little tremble in his hand? The porch was utterly dark, darker than the night itself by the time he arrived. I remember the surprise, nod of dread forming in my stomach at watching that tall, bowy, familiar silhouette cross the yard toward me. I could see none of his features. He moved like a complete shadow. I remember the momentary little shock at first hearing his voice detached from the sight of him after nearly a year. It could have been a stranger in his cologne hugging me until he spoke. But even inside of the house it was dark, even with all of the lights on. Something in the atmosphere of the place retarded the light's progress so that it could never seem to reach the corners and far places of rooms. Did I simply imagine him to be a paranoid wreck to explain why he tried to hide from me, if he was even hiding? Every time you remember a thing, you rewrite it. But he was nervous. I remember noticing because all I could think was, God, what if he's like this all summer? And he was very tired. After I finished eating, he showed me to my room and apologized, but said he had to cut the night short. He was simply too tired and needed to get to bed earlier or he'd fall asleep standing up. My room is actually little more than a closet under one of the staircases. Not that I'm complaining. There was room for a bed, and I much preferred having a space of my own to not. Just to say that, with everything so close and the bare bulb hanging from the middle of the ceiling, it was probably the best look I had at my dad's face all night when he said good night to me and his eyes were red and swollen like he'd been crying. Fuck, were they? Am I just now remembering this, or am I inventing it? Is this something I remembered for a while and then forgotten and remembered again? Regardless, I don't think any of this stood out to me then because... From the next morning on through the rest of the summer, he always seemed to be perfectly normal, at ease if not perfectly contented, more or less himself as I remembered him, save for the small changes that had accumulated over those months apart, in which my subconscious was prevented from integrating them into my mental mapping of him. Like how certain floors can appear perfectly clean, but if you sweep all of the dust into one place, then the resulting pile is a little bit revolting. The mental picture we have of a person is sort of like 95% of what we interact with when we interact with someone, even when they are standing in the room with us. He had stubble on his face now. It was like trying on glasses after a short lifetime of thinking that the world was blurry. The details catch in your throat. He used to shave every morning. How much of what I was witnessing were changes, and how much of it had always been there and was simply revealed against this new background under this peculiar light by the coast? in the context of an entirely new person, this man with hair on his face, this man who operated in the world and had the world operate on him and had an entire world here absent of my existence in which he was just a person like any other person and to boot a person who was vulnerable and could fail and would look at other women and talk to other women and was ultimately just a very small person in a very large landscape. We spent nearly two weeks driving around up and down the coast looking at the ocean and eating chili dogs and chili fries and listening to baseball games on the radio. The signal barely came in. We'd come to the bottom of a rolling little valley on a 3-2 count and lose it entirely in the static, and when we got to the top of the rise, we'd be listening to a jingle about car insurance. "'Guess he struck out,' said my dad. "'We hardly pick up anything out here. There's not a radio tower around for 50 miles.' We visited a whaling museum, and walked the beach looking for shells, and ate sandwiches while we watched the sailboats, and at one point I thought I saw a whale, or at least his spout, and maybe a little bit of his back, way off, but it was so misty and the water was so gray that I couldn't really be sure, and my dad said, Well then, you did see it, didn't you? May as well have as not. Who'll say you didn't? We went to movies in a small city about an hour away, sometimes in the afternoon. I began to wonder and to worry. One day, I think it was a Wednesday afternoon, driving back from a cowboy movie, I asked if he'd been fired from his job. He adjusted his grip on the wheel and cleared his throat, looked at me, then back at the road, then back at me. No. I asked him if he was on vacation. He said no. When do you work? I asked him. Another glance at me, back at the road. It's kind of an odd story. I got myself all moved in on Saturday, and then my first day of work was set to be Monday. So Monday morning I drove into the city, found the office, and went inside. It's that big square block of a building downtown. The cream one. But there was nobody at the reception desk. I waited in the lobby for like an hour. I would have thought I was at the wrong place but the only piece of furniture in the room besides a small plain potted tree in the reception desk was a giant sign on the wall with the name of the company. I remembered on the phone that the person I'd talked to had said my office would be on the fourth floor, so I took the stairs up and found my name on a placard. It was a corner office. Nobody told me about that. It's quite small, I could barely push my chair all the way back out from under the desk before hitting the wall. And the desk itself wasn't much more than a basic wooden table, but there were two massive windows, one for each wall, running most of the length, and nearly floor-to-ceiling. There aren't too many buildings down there taller than four stories, so it was quite the view. I sat there all day waiting for someone to find me and tell me what to do or give me some work to do, but as far as I could tell, the building was empty. Well, I think it was empty. I can't really say for sure, since I was only in three rooms the entire time I was there, if you count the stairwell but I never saw or heard anyone else. But I did have a feeling in my stomach and in the back of my head that there were other people around in other parts of the building that I wasn't privy to, behind closed doors and in conference rooms where the blinds had been drawn. There just seemed to be an energy about the building, that it was not empty, a sense that I wasn't as alone as I seemed to be. But when it started to get dark, I packed up my things and left. When I came in the next morning, the lights were off, the door was locked, and there was a closed sign in the window. I looked inside and tried to see if I could see anybody, but I could not, and this time the building had a very distinct sense of being empty. So I went home. came back the next day, same story, but on Friday I woke up to a letter slipped under my door. Can you guess what it was? I could not. A paycheck. Signed and in full. Can you believe that? I've never gone back to the office, but every other Friday my check shows up, and they always spend. It's remarkable. I asked him what he did now that he didn't have to work. Well, not a lot, I guess. I spend a lot of time walking around, looking at things. The buildings in this town are kind of strange if you look at them for long enough. I'm still thinking of what I should do next. I don't think I should rush into anything. I want to consider things carefully. The myriad of incongruous angles, eaves, and mansard roofs around the building. The myriad of incongruous angles, eaves, and mansard roofs around the boarding house's exterior had the curious effect of creating shadows which would seem to indicate a perpetual twilight, even in the morning or middle of a sunny day, as if the sunset was always imminent. That night, coming back from the movie, stands out in my mind as the only time that summer that I saw my father upset, or out of sorts, after the night of my arrival. We pulled into the driveway, and I noticed that a light was on in one of the windows. There was nothing especially unusual about that, but I asked my father if that wasn't his window, and saw the color drain from his face. The rest of the house was dark and the room beneath the room at the top of the tower glowed like a beacon in the night. He stared at it for a moment, and did not respond, or even seemed to notice as I asked him if anything was wrong, if he'd forgotten to turn off the light when he'd left. He rushed inside, and I followed behind, and found him standing in the middle of his small room. His body was still, but his eyes seemed to be scanning every inch of the place. I asked him again what was wrong, and for a long while he did not respond nothing. I guess I must have left the light on. He spoke in a way that told me he did not believe this and also did not care enough to try and make me believe it. Another one of those little incidents which was forgotten with the rise of the sun the next morning and has only resurfaced as a point of possible significance in hindsight. Another undated page from his journal.
1: Something awful has happened, as if the scrawled note I found under my door upon waking this morning did not put me ill enough at ease. Shower too long. Water not free. (sighs) What a ridiculous thing to seal in an envelope. When I returned from my walk around dinner time, I found the house oddly deserted. Not that I ever see many folks around here, but this felt different. The air of the place had settled into that distinct silence of total abandonment. I knew in my gut that nobody else was home. As I settled in for the night, it was as if a weight had been lifted from me, which I hadn't even realized I was carrying. Possibly because it had accumulated slowly over so many weeks. I bopped around the place, cooked dinner in the kitchen, singing little songs and sometimes speaking to myself in funny accents. The gloom which had hung around me like a thick fog for months Melted away, And then my bliss was shattered by a single noise. I was in my bedroom, speaking with a friend on the phone. I hung up and began to read. I'd been at it for a few minutes, enough to begin to sink into the text when I heard a solitary footstep on the floor above my head. Perhaps not even a footstep, so much as a slight shifting of weight from one foot to another. I froze, stopped reading to listen. But that was all. I've tried to recompose myself and return to my reading, but my evening has been shattered. My heart is still racing in all this stony silence, so loud that surely whoever is up there can hear it. Did they make the noise on purpose to let me know? There is a knot in my stomach that refuses to unwind. The radio is my only friend. Tonight, of all nights, I feel that I must hold the damn thing right up to my skull so that I can keep the volume down. If it were any quieter, it would be off. But I don't mind. If anything, it helps remove any other distractions which helps my body relax. I can already feel the adrenaline dissipating as I wait for the commercials to end. When she speaks, I find myself lost in her voice. Sometimes I lose track of myself. My body feels as if it is floating above my bed, and I can't tell if her words are formed outside of my own head or within it, as if my own inner thoughts have somehow melded with the radio signal, as if I've become submerged in the cool, flowing river of her monologue. I think it is not a stretch to say that if I had not discovered this program, I would have lost my mind weeks ago. Some days, many days, it is the only good or memorable thing that happens to me. Always at one in the morning. And even when I tune in early, there is never any mention of the program's name. Never any mention of the identity of the host. In fact, I never even heard it acknowledged by the DJs who are on the air prior to it. It just... begins... She speaks as if she is talking to a great many people in a very wide audience, and also as if she were speaking to me and me alone. Hardly any other stations come in out here, so I have to wonder if this signal is especially strong or if the station is especially near. She speaks till the hour when the night air becomes narcotic, and after I turn off the radio, I go to the window and open it to break the silence. I look out into the dark and let the sea winds in. I feel all at once that I have not been breathing for the past several hours, as if my soul had been inconspicuously boxed up and buried and am overwhelmed. If I can't get it some fresh air the next five seconds, my chest will burst."
0: The next several pages after that are dated and simply labeled notes. The symbols and shorthand used there are mostly incomprehensible to me though everything seems marked with a time, always between 11 and 3. Arrows going this way and that crossed each other and looped back around, connecting two, three, four ideas across the page, and sometimes across several pages. Some passages were annotated by as many as six asterisks. Every page filled to the edge. Little asides boxed off, some words underlined three times, big exclamation points nearly dug through to the following page. There was something else, strange, which happened to me toward the end of the summer. In fact, it took place the night before the incident, which is probably why I'd forgotten it until now. The entire evening, my father had seemed preoccupied, distracted. At one point he turned on the radio and every couple of minutes he'd turn up the volume and listen for a few seconds before becoming annoyed and putting it back down again. I was laying in my bed, trying to fall asleep. I was one foot in, one foot out of consciousness when I heard footsteps coming down the stairs above my bed. I realized then that apparently nobody had ever walked on these stairs while I was in bed, at least not while I was awake. I listened as they descended the length of my body. Till their feet were only a couple of inches above mine. The shoe heels were thunderous against the hardwood. My dad wore sneakers whenever he could help it. Whoever it was paused for a moment at the bottom and then turned the corner and started down the hallway toward my door and passed it. A door opened somewhere downstairs and the footsteps stopped. I placed my ear to the wall and couldn't have been more than a foot or two from whoever was in the hall. I held my breath, and as I focused I began to hear short, heavy breathing, a man's voice muttering curses. A separate set of footsteps climbing the stairs up from the first level. No, 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 said the man. And then the door to my little cupboard bedroom clicked open. A stooped shadow slipped inside and the door closed behind without a sound. I remember my hands like claws gripping the sides of my mattress. The blackness in the room was absolute. I thought, surely he knows I am here, but he made no sign. The notion that two could be so near, all but touching, in such a confined space, and one thinking himself entirely alone. The second set of footsteps reached the top of the stairs and moved toward us. And then, outside of the door, they stopped. The man at the foot of the bed paused his breathing. Seconds passed. Whoever was outside made no further indication of their presence. My father had once spent a meal telling me all about the tunnel rats of Vietnam. I had far more questions than he had answers. It didn't matter. The very idea of it burned an impression in my mind that is still clear to this day. Wedged alone in the earth, unable to even move your arms, crawling straight into a stranger's hot breath on your face. No combat more primal, none more intimate. Somewhere downstairs, the grandfather clock began to toll. Nobody moved. Unless the man inside of the cupboard with me had already managed to move without alerting me. How would I check to see if he was crawling into bed behind me without moving myself and rustling the sheets? I had hardly seen another person in months, and now here were three minds, each humming silently with overdriven focus and sweating anticipation, groping out blindly into the dark, separated by a matter of inches and yet utterly alone, each cordoned off into his own universe every universe a well of untold depth. My mind began to draw pictures out of the darkness, as if it would will a world of visual substance onto the blackness if it could not find one within it. The silence continued so long, I began to think that perhaps whoever was outside the door had muted their footsteps and moved on long ago. But then, there was a tiny sigh outside the door, and the footsteps retreated back the way they'd come, and soon the house was silent once more. I waited a long time for some indication that the strange man was still in the room with me, that he had not simply melted into the blackness. Just at the point where I thought I would go mad, when I felt my throat readying to betray me and cry out, simply to break the dread. The door opened once more, and in another moment I was, I could feel it in my chest, Alone. The final entry in my father's journal reads simply,
1: "Think I found the station. Half a day drive up the coast. Half to see her. Will update if when contact is made."
0: Dated June 5, the day before I arrived. Half a notebook of empty pages follow. The August afternoons were the longest, and with so little shade, hum of cicada, shelf upon shelf of cane-stalk grass, brittle as old parchment, sun-dried and stacked shivering in the pitiful late summer winds to meet the magnesium sky, and hurt to keep your eyes open. There is nothing in the world quite as free, deep in your chest, as an empty summer day for a thirteen-year-old boy, as if I wasn't already nostalgic at that age. Day before day of my departure, Dad wanted to go for one more ocean drive. We ate burgers in the car, watching the waves on the rocks. A storm was moving in off the horizon, a gray wall. The system obscured the sun before it could set, and darkness followed in its wake, an apocalyptic dark. We rolled up the windows and turned for home, but soon we were overtaken by the storm, and the world outside of the car appeared unnatural, charged with a sinister electricity. The heavy raindrops followed not long after, cracking on the windshield. We didn't talk, but the loud mechanical rhythm of the wipers made me feel cocooned from the storm bearing down on us. Trees filled like sails and bent like old men in the wind. The rain came in waves. It landed in visible sheets on the pavement and pelted the roof of the car, which had never felt so close to the top of my head. We were still on the road when actual night came. I remember how my dad leaned over the wheel, squinting through the windshield at the dim cone of illuminated pavement and all that swirling dark, cascading half-blind down doom roads, knuckles locked at ten and two, trusting that the road would continue to materialize in our path. He said something like, I had a really good time today. It was a good summer, wasn't it? And I said that it was, and he smiled at me. I hadn't seen him smile like that in a long time. The town sprung up on either side of the road, just a few smudgy lights twinkling in the incalculable distance among all that rain and grass, near instantaneously. It is easy enough to see why it happened, and I think anyone would admit that it could have happened to anyone, if their luck was poor enough. The earth itself was steaming, as if the water were landing on a hot frying pan and the windshield had begun to fog. We crested a hill, and the headlights fell, glowing upon a crosswalk, and the white-hot face of a child, a boy, maybe six, walking a bicycle across the street. The next two seconds filled the space of a minute. All I wanted to do was reach out and somehow fix it, as it was happening, to just somehow bend the fabric of reality for a moment by force of my will. The crunching of metal and plastic might have been the crumpling of my spleen or kidney. It had all been so matter-of-fact, just a quick squeal of tires, fleshy thud, and he was gone. Image of his little hands thrown up in the air burned phosphorescent upon my eyes. His bent yellow bike was sitting twenty or so feet down the road, at the very edge of the headlights' reach, getting rained on. We sat there for a long time, listening to the windshield wipers. Dad? W- was he wearing a helmet? I... don't know. The pavement steamed like a paleolithic swamp in the headlights, like the headlight beams were the magnified rays of some distant sputtering sun. Eventually my dad unbuckled his seatbelt and opened the door. I watched as he retrieved the bicycle, carried it in one hand, squinting in the rain. He put it in the trunk and then he went around to the front of the car his face twitched a bit and he shifted his stance and glanced up at me and then held his hand out as if to block my view of his face but I saw him nodding his head he put his hands on his hips and then he bent forward and I looked at the floor the car shifted a bit and a moment later I heard the back door open fuck fuck he's bleeding the door closed and then the trunk opened again Headlights appeared in the mirror. The trunk slammed shut. The car pulled up alongside us, moving slowly, and then stopped and idled there for a while, headlights dripping in the rain. Finally, the passenger side window rolled down. The inside of the car was hardly any more visible. Everything all right? Yep, said my dad. Just a flat. The low, discordant murmuring of the two engines seemed tawdry and tenuous within all that night. Eventually the man spoke. If you say so. Thanks for stopping. The window slowly reset, though the car did not leave immediately. My dad climbed back in the car, dripping, and just said, Sorry. As if he were apologizing for the man having held up our progress. Trembling, perhaps from the cold, he patted his pockets for his keys. God damn it! The car is already on, I said. Was the other car waiting for us to leave? To follow? Do you think they saw? I asked. No, of course not. It's raining out, it's dark. They were far away, coming around the corner, and he was already... He trailed off as if he'd stumbled down the wrong path at a fork and realized only too late and was grasping blindly for a word which could light his way back whose magical properties could somehow through the delicacies and tightly choreographed abstractions of language manifest some sort of alchemical change in the physical reality he was attempting to report the other car took off and soon disappeared somewhere in between the darkened hills and then we lighted out as well We drove and drove and drove some more. As long as he was driving somewhere, he didn't have to think. Driving itself was a form of progress. He was giving himself time to think and an excuse not to, one step at a time. As long as he drove, he wouldn't have to look in the trunk. Buying time for fate or the universe or dumb luck, good or bad, to intervene and take off his hands, the decisions he would have to make. Maybe he was waiting for the kid to start pounding on the inside of the trunk, set the world back on its axis and all parties on their way, to someday having a good laugh about this whole misunderstanding. We drove back to the beach where we'd eaten a few hours earlier, passing several others along the way. At some point, the rain stopped. He parked up on the bluff and made his way down a series of switchbacks to the beach, with the bike in one hand and the boy slumped over his shoulder. I watched him rest the body on some rocks, and then he wandered off down the beach and out of view. He returned a few minutes later, dragging a small boat. At the edge of the water he loaded the vessel, and then shoved off into the surf. The moon was low in the sky over the black water, and only a narrow sliver, like a crystal bowl hung from smoldering Venus directly above. He sailed farther out, and farther still, and soon he was gone something caught my eye then a glint of white in the moonlight at the far front of the car upon investigating i discovered a small tooth wedged there in the hood of the car within a small dent in the aluminum it was difficult to pry out as there was so little for my fingers to grab i slid it into my pocket a few minutes later a police car turned up onto the bluff and stopped and turned on its flashers The cop tapped on the driver's side window with the butt of his flashlight. No camping. He said something into the radio on his shoulder, and then he saw me in the passenger seat. Are your parents here? I nodded. He asked where. I said, fishing. He looked at me. Really? Fishing? I told him it was a kind of fish that only bit at night. He said, why don't we wait for him to get back? And so we did. A long time passed, so long, that I began to think my dad had seen the red and blue lights back on the shore and made a run for it. But then I saw the dark shape moving across the water, cutting across the meager reflection of the moon. As he mounted the first switchback, I called out, Hey Dad! The police are here! There's no overnight parking allowed! Oh, he said, just loud enough to be heard over the din of the ocean. Uh, okay. About a minute later, he was nearing the car. Evening, sir, said the policeman. Hi. Rough night, huh? What? You're empty-handed. Nothing biting? Oh, yeah. Rough night. Where's your pole? Uh, I left all my gear down with the boat. I see. Trustful man. You see anything interesting out there? Asked the cop. The wind picked up, rustling through the dune grass and blowing around little streams of sand. Not much. Tell you the truth, sir. Don't get a lot of folks out fishing this time of night. What can I say? I find it relaxing. Oh, sure. The boy doesn't like to fish? My dad looked at me then. He wasn't feeling too good. I thought I'd let him sleep it off. I see. The officer adjusted his belt and looked out over the water. Well, you folks have a good evening, men. Drive safe. Thanks, officer. You as well. Everyone went back to their cars, and soon we were alone again. The birds were awake now, and the first gray light of dawn began to bleed over the horizon. We drove back to town in silence. As the light grew, I noticed the stain on the back seat. "'Oh, God,' he said, and pulled over onto the shoulder of the road. He had a towel and some water, and he sat there on his knees, scrubbing for a half hour. The black stain turned red beneath the stream, but all the toweling made little difference.' He kept starting to cry but then he would pause his work for a moment and try to turn his face away to a subtle degree to swipe at his eyes with his forearm and compose himself before returning to the task his face grew so red and swollen bent over the stain that it looked like foam might begin pouring out of his lips at any moment his eyes puffy with crying and frustration i told him that i had to pee and i went over a little hill just off the road When I returned, I saw him sitting in the back seat, punching the driver's seat headrest over and over. He just kept saying, Why? 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 He drove to the laundromat and parked around the side, and we waited there until they opened. Then he fell asleep with his arms crossed and his head tilted away from the rising sun. Nine o'clock came and went, and nobody arrived. The place remained dark. My dad continued to snore. I let him sleep. For his sake and mine, so that I'd at least have a bit of positive news to wake him up with. It was nearly ten before another car pulled into the lot. A man with a large key ring let himself into the building, but when I tried the door I found it locked and the inside still dark. The man appeared on the other side of the glass and pointed at the sign frosted there. It's Sunday. We're not open. Please, I, I just need some soap what part of closed is confusing you please I said he sighed thought about it for a moment and then retreated and when he returned he had a box of soap he unlocked the door and opened it only far enough to reach his hand through for the money and after he handed me the soap I asked if I might also borrow a brush he sighed again at this and rolled his eyes but once again returned with what I'd requested five dollars he said I took it from my dad's wallet "'Leave it on that bench over there,' he said, and pointed at his watch. "'One hour,' I asked him what he meant. "'But I paid you for it,' I said. "'Rental,' he said, now wagging his finger at me. "'And then he disappeared, back to his office amongst the washers and dryers. "'I tried scrubbing the stain myself, but this quickly woke my father. "'He shooed me away and took over, and made much better progress with the soap and brush, "'but still the stain refused to be erased entirely,' A stubborn amber hue remained in a swirl on the fabric, a deep crimson splotch at its center, the size of a quarter. He tossed a blanket over it, and we drove on. Upon arriving in town, we found ourselves suddenly turning into a logjam of traffic. More cars here than I'd seen cumulatively that entire season. And not just the roads, but the sidewalks, too, bustling with people, all moving through and past and around one another. Dozens and dozens, though oddly silent. In fact, I remember my father turning the radio down and then off, as it seemed a lot of noise to be making in that environment, even with the windows up. I could count on one hand, in fact, in in actuality I can remember meeting exactly no other people for that entire summer, and only assume I did meet a few here and there through context and circumstances. Events I remember in which I must have interacted with another person and only forgotten everything about them somewhere in time. But now, here was the entire town, maybe even the entire county, up with the sun on a Sunday morning. As traffic progressed inch by steady inch, we made our way deeper into town, and soon the steeple of the church appeared over the summit of the hill we were mounting, stark, stoic. And as we drew farther along, and eventually over this crest, it became apparent that the general flow of energy within the crowd was toward the church. At one point, a woman stepped off the sidewalk and approached our car, knocking on my window. The knocking made me jump, even though I'd watched her the entire way. My dad rolled down the window only a few inches. "'Have you seen the Sanderson's this morning?' she asked. She had her hair pulled back startlingly tight. I'm afraid not," said my father. She eyed us a moment and then returned to the sidewalk without another word. Foot traffic prevented an easy turn onto the road back to the boarding-house, so, swept up in the great push of the crowd, rather than delay all traffic behind us even farther, we continued on toward the church. My dad's expression was that of a sleepwalker as he turned into the makeshift parking lot on the grass field across from the chapel. The crowd on the street was thinning by the time we parked. The river of congregants flowing through the church doors had slowed to a trickle. He stopped the engine. Cicadas, hot engine clicking. He glanced at the mirror a moment, at the wide double front doors freshly painted white. The silence inside of the church unsettled me greatly. It was impossible to comprehend, given the number of people I knew must be inside. You stay here, he said. You must be exhausted. Why don't you lean that seat back and take a nap? I'll crack a window for you. He must have known by my face that I did not love the idea. I won't be too long. Then he kissed my forehead. He never did that. When he left, he found himself walking across an empty street, apparently the last to enter the service, three minutes late, according to the sign. But how could I sleep? I sat up thinking, worrying, running out scenarios in my mind, watching the bicycle bounce across the pavement. And then I decided to pray. Not a thing I had ever done before. If there was a proper method to it, I was ignorant. I just started speaking to God in my head. I tried to speak to him out loud, but the sound of my voice in that silent car scared me. I didn't even know what I was asking for, only for some way out, any deal I could strike which would somehow negate the previous twelve hours, set the trajectory of our lives back onto the path they'd been on when we woke up yesterday morning, in our own beds, in the real world, for help, deliverance, I suppose. I focused so deeply, so completely on the prayer, jaw unwittingly clenched in concentration, that the outside world faded far, far into the background. Time itself seemed almost to melt, meaningless. I don't know how many minutes had passed when I was lifted back into the world by a tapping on the glass. A young blonde girl, chewing gum, peering in at the back seat. My heart leapt against my ribcage. And then... I heard it. A breathing that was not my own, steady with sleep. Its nearness chilled me. I turned to see for myself what the girl was staring at. It was a boy, asleep beneath the blanket, perhaps six, still in his bike helmet. His chest rose and fell, and the girl's breathing threatened to fog the whole window. In that moment I was completely paralyzed. I could not have moved if the car had suddenly caught fire. A deep fear struck me at the sight of the boy, and yet I thought that if I were to take my eyes away from him, he would disappear forever. In the perfect slant of that mid-morning sunlight, he looked like he could have been an angel. People began to emerge from the church, a few at first, and then the bulk of the congregation. My father staggered out into the sunlight with the last of the stragglers. By then a couple of other people had already begun to make their way toward our car, curious what the blonde girl was looking at. It wasn't long before a ring of strangers had formed around me, peering in at the boy through fish tank windows. My father pushed his way through and pressed his face to the glass. I've had years to consider this now, to turn it over in my head and consider every last detail of the moment until it loses all meaning entirely. The only conclusion that brings me any sense of closure is simple the sight of the boy. Drove him mad. That does not bring it any closer to being correct or incorrect, for that matter, but it is a narrative. He ran away from the car screaming. That was the last I ever saw of him, save for a letter every few months, then every few years, letting me know he'd moved, that he was still safe, or at least alive. Little else. Denver, Jackson Hole, San Francisco. A couple who seemed to be his parents came and carried the boy out of the car. He woke in their arms, and, as far as I ever knew, seemed to be in perfect health. But he did not, would or maybe even could not, speak a single word, no matter how many questions he was asked, no matter how folks doted on him. It was as if he was incapable and unwilling in equal measure It took me a little over an hour to walk back to the boarding house to wait for my mom. My dad had been planning to make lunch for all of us, but he was nowhere to be found. Nearly a decade passed between his last letter and the phone call from the Anchorage Police Department informing me of his death. They say of natural causes. He was not even 50. His apartment here is small. Only the one room. Disorganized and messy, but not dirty. His radio was on the bedside table right beside him when he died. It was tuned to dead air.